0: Things do change. It's about keeping abreast of the changes and making sure that your business is not a step or more behind that, is either on it or marginally ahead of it. That's why people come to Absco meetings, because we're looking at that.
1: Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Anne Swain. Anne is the global CEO of APSCO, an international trade body representing the professional recruitment sector with operations in the UK, Germany, Singapore, and Australia. Anne has over 30 years' recruitment experience and was formerly UK sales director of Computer People before establishing APSCO in 1999. By the way, Anne is the co author of the best selling book. The Professional Recruiter's Handbook. She has been listed by the staffing industry analyst as one of the most influential women in recruitment. In this episode, you'll benefit from Anne's insight on the trends, challenges, and opportunities for recruiters in the ever-changing post-pandemic world. Welcome, Anne. Thank you for joining me.
0: Mark, my pleasure. I'm impressed that you've got my book. I'm hoping you've read it. I hope yeah, you I have, it.
1: yeah. <laughs> Listen, I have got this years ago. When, when did it come out?
0: Um, Was that one, is that the white version or is it a beige color? It's beige. That's the first one. And then there was a second edition afterwards. So it's probably about 10 years ago and then about seven years ago, second edition. And they're waiting for a third edition. I've just been so busy. I've just been really busy. And it would need a rewrite because the market's changed, resourcing's changed, artificial intelligence is here, you know. social media is here in a big way. So it would be quite a big rewrite, to be honest.
1: Do you know what, though? I think there's so much in, like 90% of it is still absolutely relevant. And the only, I mean, yes, social media and technology have been the big shifts, but This is like a textbook for recruitment consultants. And what I would suggest, in fact, I have suggested this to some of my coaching clients. If they have new uh, starters joining them, then it is a good idea to send them this book even before they start. Like when you're waiting for them to start a couple of weeks before they start, they've accepted the offer, send them, Anne's book, The Professional Recruiter's Handbook, ask them to go through it with a highlighter pen and take notes. And then one of the activities for their first week is they can report in what they learned from the book. And I think it'll give them a really good grounding and grasp of what recruiting and being a recruiter is all about.
0: Thank you, kind sir. I did exactly that. My nephew has come into the recruitment market with an Absco member, actually, which is fantastic. And cool. um, I gave him uh, the more updated version of the book and said, before you start, read this book, mark it up, then keep it on your desk and check out what you can do. But it does date you know things change and it needs to be really updated in quite a big way i think the relationships that we have with customers is different these days i think the quality of recruiters needs to be better these days because more complicated job more compliance and we do list you know i list all of that in the book i co-wrote it with a friend of mine jane Neal brown and um so we were really on getting things up to date But then it's set, it's set in that time warp as it were, and it needs to be updated. But thank you, thanks Bob for that.
1: Well, listen, while we're on the topic, let's explore that uh, in terms of the changes. But actually I had to ask you, almost every book I've read in the recruiting field have been self-published or published by small presses. And yours is published by Kogan Page, which is a major publisher. But it's such a niche book. How did you get a a major book publisher to publish something that's only for the recruitment industry?
0: Well, I think it's an interesting one actually, and it's a long time ago. Um, you need to remember that I'm a recruiter, which means mm-hmm. realistically persuasive communication techniques should be up my street. And <laughs> um, Jane, Neil Brown and I had a meeting with Coke and Page. They published loads of business books, one of the major mm-hmm. business publishers. And we talked to them about the idea and they went for it. You know, we talked to them, we asked them questions, gave them what they really, really wanted and uh, in the book and, the, and then they went for it. It's been published in Romanian, would you believe? <laughs> and okay. um, it's been published all over the world. So, mm-hmm. I do go to different events in different places, obviously Singapore, Australia on a regular basis, Germany, whatever. And I get, you know, people come up to me to ask me to sign a copy of the book. So, yeah, they went for it. We sold it to them for heaven's sake. That's what we're supposed to do in life. And they went for it, but it sold really, really well. And I think it sold well because previous books in the market had been quite American. The Mm -hmm. UK market and a lot of other markets are different to the American market. Mm -hmm. And therefore there was a gap. And I think we were fulfilling you know, something that that filled that gap, actually. And um, and then, of course, they asked for a second edition, they've asked for a third edition, because it has sold and it is used as a textbook. Um, And it was meant to be a textbook, it was meant to be a university level textbook, but for professional recruiters.
1: That was the idea That's of it. That's so. a great story. <clears throat> I love that. Uh, it's funny. What other languages was it translated into?
0: Well, to my knowledge, only Romanian, which <laughs> is the Romanian. weirdest <laughs> one. It was the weirdest <laughs> one. I remember them asking if it was okay to publish it in <laughs> Romania and um, and in Romanian. And and I was sort of flattered, but slightly surprised. I did speak some years later. I was invited to speak at a conference in uh Bucharest. And um, it was a big recruitment conference and well attended. And a lot of the people seem to have the book. And it was a great audience and an interesting recruitment market, mainly perm market. Uh, The contract market hadn't really kicked off in a way that it will do and probably has done since actually, Uh, but an interesting market. But it wouldn't have been the language I would have thought. But if you look at the majority of the big recruitment regions, then often they're in English. If you you know if you look at a lot of Asia Pac, the easiest common knowledge w- w- uh, language would be English. Japan, obviously, huge market. To my knowledge, it hasn't been published in Japanese, um, but it's read across Asia Pac. It seems to be used sometimes in the states as well, though the market's quite
1: different. Anyway, oh, there fantastic. you go,
0: Romania.
1: That's fascinating. So I once had one of my training manuals translated into Polish. It was just when um, Poland had joined the EU and I was invited by a large staffing company over there to speak for their uh, managers and senior consultants. And they said, "You look, this manual is really good, but could, you, could we pay you for the license and we can translate it into Polish? And I said, okay, that sounds fine. And so they paid me a license fee for a few years. And then Randstad took them over and Randstad said, well, we've got our own training material. So... Fair enough, but that was good while well, it lasted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's get into this, And You launched AppsGo 21 years ago. Yeah, be 22
0: years in October, but who's counting?
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So for those who aren't familiar with AppsGo, can you briefly explain who you serve and, w- and what you provide?
0: Yeah, would cool. be my pleasure, actually. So, ABSCO, as we've said, was created in 1999. It was created at that time as ATSCO, with a T rather than a P, to be the trade association for the uh, IT recruitment market, technology. Um, And it grew out of that into engineering, kind of country cousins of IT, I always thought in those days, and then across professional markets. And 10 years after its launch in 1999, so in 2009, we changed the name to APSCO Association of Professional Staffing Companies. And the reason for doing that, and what's been our raison d'etre ever since really, is that we believe there should be a difference between the professional staffing market, both permanent and contract. But also then the rest of the market. So, that in the professional market, often um, that market is collateral damage when legislation is created that generally is about protecting potentially vulnerable workers. And in the professional markets, we don't really have vulnerable workers. Um, And also, it tends to have a bit of a bad reputation. lower end of that market and is perceived to be something that can be done in numbers and with often a lower skill set. And so, we felt that there was a real strong need to create a trade association and representation for the professional markets to show the difference, to show um, governments across different areas that it's important to have different legislation looking at maybe IT contractors or engineers or freelance teachers, whatever it may be, locum teachers, um, as different from temporary people busted in to a gang master environment or whatever else it may be. We felt that also end user clients need to understand that the relationship with your recruitment consultant at the top end. Is different. You need more information for job specifications and people specifications. You need to have a real relationship and an understanding and a high level skill set. And for anyone who wants to come into the recruitment market or who didn't think they were going to come into the recruitment market to attract them into the market. We need to show that there's real career progression and uh, a niche and intellectually interesting career opportunity within the professional recruitment market that is quite different from other areas in the market. And so, we serve our members by creating information, intelligence, ideas, a ton of service offering that's quite meeting oriented, Zoom oriented at the moment, as you can imagine, um, that makes sure that our members are up to date from a compliance point of view, have all the information that they need to understand their markets, which are all niche, um, and the future opportunities for their businesses. And obviously, a big lobbying piece to make sure that we're protective, but also proactive in suggesting legislation that can help our members but the top end of the market expand we're international so we have a big focus on making sure that recruitment companies that have an understanding on whether to and how to expand
1: geographically outside of the uk so that's kind of what we do fantastic that's really interesting i know um you are passionate about talent development And you alluded just a moment ago to making the recruitment sector into a profession. Could you expand on that? Why is that important and and how can we make recruitment a real profession? Well, I think that recruitment is without question a
0: profession, but it needs to be recognized as such. Personally, I think with any profession, there needs to be professional development and professional qualifications that's achievable throughout your career. And so, consequently, at APSCO, we have a very active talent development team. We train a lot of members uh, across the world, actually. And we work with other organizations, academic organizations, to try and add value with some academic prowess to the whole of the recruitment market. So, for instance, we've worked more recently in the last few years with Cranfield Business School to create an MBA program that has a specific focus on the recruitment market. And then we, we work to make sure um, that with Grant Thornton, actually, to make sure that uh, people wanting to do an MBA, which is hard and expensive and a lot of time and effort, uh, to actually get those MBA programs covered within the apprenticeship scheme so that at least a third of the fees could be taken off of the cost of that. And um, ultimately, we got more than that taken off from a cost point of view. We have a cohort in their second year of doing their MBA program just about to start, actually. Um, The government have changed some rules on apprenticeship schemes and what they will cover and what they won't. But we're talking to the government about trying to make sure that those senior level academic qualifications, especially in niche areas, can be continued And so we're working really hard on that. So there's a four range we do with regard to the professionalism of the recruitment market. It's important when we want to attract the best staff to be able to compete with a management consultancy or the big accountancy firms or whomsoever legal firms to attract the best talent into the recruitment market. Look, Mark. Accidentally, I fell into the recruitment market, and there are a lot of people in—in, in, you know, this market have done exactly the same. And I think, wouldn't it be great? Me, Me as well. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. A lot of people that I've spoken to have said, "Oops, you know, didn't know what to do," and hey presto, dropped in accidentally, and luckily enough stayed. But there is a marketable career. In the recruitment market, that APSCO by visiting universities, both here in Singapore, actually as well, to promote a career in that staffing sector, and so we, we work very hard at it. We think it's important, and it can make a really big difference.
1: Uh, and I actually have a friend, Amy Stevenson, who is doing the MBA program that you put together with with Cranfield University, and um, she's loving it. She's feeling like. It's massively developing her, giving her more confidence um, to the extent that she's developed a consulting offering in addition to the, you know, alongside the recruiting services. Um, but man, it's hard, hard graft. She is because she's running her recruiting business as well as studying for the MBA. It's um yeah, it's, it's not easy.
0: It isn't easy. And I've got one of my staff going through it. Terry is going through the MBA program. It was something, interestingly, as we were launching it, I heard Terry say at a, a member meeting that she dreamt of doing an MBA for the whole of her life. And I thought, my goodness, why? She's come out of recruitment. I thought, why wouldn't I want to support my member of staff to do something if she's worth, you know, Really going to put the level of work in to do it. Why wouldn't we support it financially, but also with some time? So she has a couple of days off every month to go to Cranfield. Once you can go to Cranfield, but a couple of days off specifically on MBA stuff. She's doing project work that she brings back to APSCO. She's doing some project work uh, coming up on expansion, international expansion, to look at the best ways to choose which countries and how to set up. Now we've got a little bit of experience in that. And I think we've been pretty lucky, but I'd rather be better organized and know exactly what she be doing. So she's doing that kind of work for us as part of her MBA program. So I think it's totally working for her. It's definitely hard work without question. But actually, it's working for us too. And what I would say for anyone who's up for sending somebody and allowing them to do an MBA, you need to be open-minded about when they come back and have ideas and looking to back those ideas rather than being, go and study and no, I'm not interested in anything you learn. That would be a waste. So uh, we have experience of that MBA program. Terry does a number of presentations to the Apsco team on different things so that we're all sharing a bit, actually a bit greedy on sharing some of that knowledge that, that she's getting. But I'm glad that your friend Amy's enjoying it.
1: But yeah, it's hard work. Hard. Two years, hard work. Absolutely. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I want to encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Speaking of talent development then and thinking from the perspective of the recruitment business owner, what describe what you perceive as a world-class talent development program. What would that involve? Because I feel like in order to attract and retain the top people within recruiting and to your specific business, This is one of the keys, um, not only to, of course, maximizing people's performance, but attracting, retaining great people. You have to develop them. So what could that look like? Uh, in addition to the academic op- opportunities available.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think it looks marginally different in practice, depending on the size of business that you are. And we, you know, mm-hmm. from a practical point of view, if you are a multinational mega business, then you can be very seriously well organized, have programs that last for life. That when somebody comes into the business, they recognise how their career will progress in a formal way and what training they will have. And I think, you know, I think that's great. And uh, obviously the big companies have those kind of programs. The majority of the recruitment market, if I look in the UK, are medium and smaller businesses. So from a realistic point of view, I think it's important to perhaps focus on them. And what I would say is one, have um, an opportunity to create uh, a career long program. So don't think that training starts with new entrants and then stops. I know a lot of companies that have got people that have been promoted to directors and don't know really what a director's role is because training stopped way back. So I think that, um, Programs that last a whole career for somebody within a business need to be organized. I think in smaller businesses, that will mean using external resources, sometimes in addition to internal resources. I mean, you know, obviously I would say that wouldn't I, but there's a reality uh, to that. And I also think actually some of the big companies should use some more external resources to freshen up the voices that people are hearing, the presentations that people are getting and the workbooks online probably these days that people are going through. So, I do think that from a development program, it should be well-organized. I think it should have flexibility depending on career paths that people want to take within their companies. It should have flexibilities with the individuals of what exactly, so it's not too cookie and that it should have flexibility uh, with those individuals to choose ways to go and what to do and in what time frame. I think it should be a mix nowadays of online because that's practical and inexpensive and gives opportunities for people to do some work at home mixed with some face-to-face delivery and that might be by an internal employee of the business, a senior person within the business or different ones or indeed external just to give a different texture. And then I think there should be other things looking at creativity and a whole range of things that you wouldn't think are just skill set oriented. Because I think in the recruitment market, we've been quite skill set oriented. And I think that we need to train and develop people on a range of skills. I was always a big fan of covering um, courses if if any of my staff wanted to learn a new language, even if it wasn't necessarily 100% relevant to their job today, who knows what the opportunities for their job coming forward that it's worth them doing. The other big thing that I'm a proponent on, and I think the recruitment market has been slow-ish to pick this up, but it's happening now, which is great, And that is looking at personal development of people rather than just that skills base. And for that, we've uh, worked for a long time with the Women in Recruitment brand of creating a mentoring programme. So we've created a mentoring programme. It's worked very well. um, But actually, we're bringing that in-house now with some very clever software. And we've created something that we're going to launch in the summer, give it a couple of weeks, called... uh, it's called empower me sorry i'm mixing up all the other things we're doing empower me and empower me is part of our embrace program which is all to do with looking after people within the seven protected characteristics and helping that big mix cultural mix sexual orientation mix whatever it may be ability mix of people within uh that we should be attracting more of actually within the recruitment market and the uh Empower Me is about how to match a mentor and a mentee for a six-month uh, relationship through the mentorship Programme with some value-add in there on how to be a great mentor and how to be a great mentee, diarising and other input into there to make sure that it's easy and inexpensive, totally affordable for anyone to be able to have an external mentor to help them through their career. And again, as I said, it's not skills oriented that that's about personal development. How can I promote my career within the business? How can I juggle having a family and a career? How can I get over the fact that I can be shy in meetings or don't want to do presentations, that kind of stuff? And um, we're really excited about it. We've been uh, piloting it for um, a few months now, just making sure we've got it slick and well-organized and it's about to launch. So I, I think from a development program, it goes beyond training it goes to mentoring, it goes to um, personal development across the board in things that are not only about recruitment and the skill sets necessary, but as an individual, how you can grow throughout your career. There you go. I
1: love that, (laughs) Anne. Excuse me. Yeah. The mentoring and personal development aspect, I think, is huge. And it's one that hasn't formally been addressed. And, you know, at least I'm not aware of any other programs like this. So that's really cool. I agree 100% that learning and development needs to be continuous and ongoing throughout everybody's career. Um, And of course, the best businesses and the best, you know, uh, leaders recognize that, and they they invest in their own development as well as that of their their teams. But um, you're right; I think it's too easy just to say, oh, "Well, she's been trained." You know, she we did that onboarding when she started two years ago or whatever, and to forget that people need con- continuously to be challenged and developed. Otherwise, they're going to go stale, lose interest, and not. Advance as as much as they possibly could to their full potential, but the personal development aspect really, really interesting. Um, you touched on something there, which was uh, gender balance, and you just mentioned in passing, but I did want to ask you about that today because I'm currently working my way through working my way through. Recruiter Magazine, Hot 100, and Fast 50 lists. And I'm inviting founders and CEOs of those firms onto the podcast. I've had a number already and, and more who are booked. Um, I was surprised, actually, Anne, to find there are only six women on that Hot 100 list, which I thought we would, as an industry, we'd be doing better because it pretty much is the same ratio as a FTSE 100. There are six women CEO. CEOs of FTSE 100 companies as of 2021. Um, So as a woman who's made it to the C-suite in our profession, what can we do in the recruitment sector to create pathways for more women to the top?
0: Um I've been involved in women in recruitment for a very long period of time and we've we've done regular research every year to see whether that kind of figure has changed it hasn't changed enough and there are definitely things that we can do some of the other research we've done is to find out why I think it's very easy for us to blame for women to blame men for this and say, it must be men creating glass ceilings. It must be men blocking our paths. And I'm not sure that I think it is that Actually, I think it's down to one, a bit of history. So, people that have got to that level, you're looking at their career a little while ago in order for it to have moved to get to where they should be uh, at the minute. So, there's a bit of history, and I think that will change. Um, I hope so. Boy, oh boy, I hope so. I think one of the other things that we've found in our service for women recruitment is that we lose women from the recruitment market. Not all of them, but we lose quite a big percentage actually, just at the time when they're senior enough to be either moving or being in a management position and before they get to the next stage. And we looked at why are we losing them? We lose more women at that stage than men. And why? And we can't afford to lose anybody when they're good at what they're doing. We need to keep the good people in we seem to be losing women because a lot of them feel the culture isn't quite right for them in the recruit market mm. that culture of you know history, things have changed probably because nobody's been in an office of things being alcohol oriented to have fun that thing that so many people used to say to me that they work hard and play hard that sounds cheesy but it kind of always did and it can often be a turn off for women and culturally I do think a lot of women will look at, and some men will look at whether they can continue in a culture if they want to maybe have a family, maybe pursue some other interests like an MBA or whatever else it may Can their role currently allow them to do that within the recruitment market? And I think a lot of them feel no. And some of them feel that earlier on. If I had a boyfriend, if we got married, if we had children, could I still do a job where we have eight o'clock sales meetings in the morning and we have drinks every Friday night till late or whatever? And I think a lot of women are stepping out of the market then. I think that we need to look at our business. And I think a lot of companies are doing that now, actually. Look at our businesses. Look at how we want them to... Um, actually replicate our market area with regard to candidates, with regard to clients making big changes, and make sure that there is an equal opportunity, that we're not putting barriers, silly barriers, without thinking about it. It's not intentional, I don't think. Um, Maybe I'm naive, but I really do not believe it's intentional. It doesn't make it okay, there's still barriers. But I think the reality is that we need to look at our businesses and look at how we can keep the best people in our businesses and get them to be the leaders of those businesses tomorrow. And all recruitment companies actually want to do that because we all have a problem in looking at Who is going to take over this business after me and after that next person? So if we keep the good people in by having a culture that works and is appropriate, isn't based around um, being there, not being at your kid's. You know, parents' evening or whatever, because you have to show that you're present. That presenteeism thing is just, you know, I think probably through COVID has become more of a thing of the past than ever before. So I think it's been unintentional. I think it's been a bit clumsy, actually. But I think. It's definitely a conversation piece now, not only about women, but actually about people from different backgrounds, different ages, different physical abilities, a whole range of things. I mean, et al, let's say. And I think that we should be having and are having more open house with whom we want to attract and what opportunities we
1: give them within our businesses. That's a good thing. Wow. um, It's interesting what you're saying about women exiting due to the culture, lack of culture fit based on what their long-term aspirations are. And I guess that makes sense. What do we do about that? I do think a lot of businesses end up with a culture by default rather than design. They don't sit down and actually think, what do we want our business to be like? What's, what kind of environment do we want to create? What values are most important to us? Um, well, what can business owners do recognizing that in order to consider that as they're designing their workplace?
0: Well, it's an interesting question. I didn't know was going to come out, but it's pretty good timing this really, Mark, because Absco are just working with an organisation to do a big piece of research on the culture of the recruitment market. Mm. And, And then there's an opportunity for companies to come afterwards to look at how their company culture fits in with the recruitment market culture per se. I think that we need, do need to look seriously at what our culture is. I do think often it's accidental. It can be based around an ego of, you know, and a personality of the original owner of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what is interesting is any research that we've done, um, the senior management team of the business have a completely different idea of what the culture is to their uh, team on the floor. Mm. And they judge it being differently. So I think sometimes there's quite a high level of ignorance with regard to that. Um, And I think that in creating a service where people can look at what the average culture looks like, how it works, how it makes some people not want to come into the market and others leave earlier than they would have done means that we can really do something. I think information is key. I think you can't mm-hmm. do anything until you know what it is and where your company fits in that, which is why we're doing this survey actually now. Interesting, we only launched it a couple of weeks ago.
1: All right, well, that sounds very relevant. I would, lo- I would love to learn more about that when you've, yeah. when you've done the research. You might remember back in episode 43, I talked to Plamen Ivanov, the executive chairman of iintro. If you missed it, it's well worth going back into the archives and having a listen. One of the things we talked about was a way for recruiters to shift the conversation with prospects away from fees and make it all about value. iintro has created a tool called the Bad Hire Calculator that you can show to your prospects that proves to them that your recruitment service will save them potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. When you can do that, the exact fees you charge almost become immaterial because you've proved that you will save the client the most money in the long run. If you'd like to add this tool to your arsenal, you'd be pleased to know that I've partnered with iIntro and they're offering a 25% discount to listeners of the Resilient Recruiter podcast. All you have to do to claim this discount is book a free consultation and mention my name or this podcast. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained, follow the instructions and iIntro will take care of the rest. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Let's talk about how the recruitment sector must adapt. Um, You know, what trends and challenges are you seeing post-COVID and what are the opportunities that, you know, we can take advantage of?
0: I think if if we look at the market, and look, let's focus on the UK market for the minute, um, I think the obvious ones are the flexible working piece and, Mm -hmm. the you know, giving opportunities for more Zoom oriented stuff, you know, utilising technology for that flexibility. Let's put that aside because it's obvious. And I think we've all talked quite a a lot about it in the past 15 months. And it's there. So, you know, I see that being there. If we look at some of the other trends, some of them are trends that were there anyway, and maybe they've, you know, the velocity um, that we're experiencing has, has increased. So we're seeing much you know, quicker change. I think the use of technology has not just artificial intelligence, but communications oriented technology has really moved forward. And I think that our clients are more sophisticated than they have ever been. And they demand more from us, but pay less than they seem to have ever done. And they want us to respond and communicate using technology that they're utilising and measure more than they ever did in order not just to have a good relationship with somebody, but to really put some metrics behind the success level of something that can be a big spend for a corporate organisation. And so consequently, I think that use of technology, people need to be more up to date. It's not just about having a decent CRM. It's got to go beyond that. So I think that's one of the biggest changes. I mentioned the sophistication of the buying market. And I really do think that's been the major change. And I think, I'm going to cough, sorry about this. <clears throat> and I do think that that affects the way that we work with our client base, that we're we're needing a different type of individual to come in. I mentioned it earlier on, actually, I think we need more sophisticated
1: people to come into our businesses where we can offload. So, sorry. What do you mean by, well, first of all, what do you mean by clients are more sophisticated and by we need more sophisticated people what I I don't know if I understand exactly what you're well I think
0: look I think and look I have been in the recruit market as we said for an awfully long time and I do believe and, and I'm looking obviously at the professional market rather than at the bottom end of the market but But a client in those days was pretty pleased. I was an IT recruiter, uh, proud of it, Uh, was pretty pleased to get a candidate with the right skill set match. But nowadays, I think clients are looking for much, much more than that. And some clients don't even want the proverbial bum on a seat. They want advice on what salaries should look like. They want advice on what career opportunities, how they should be framed. They want advice on a culture that good candidates would flock to. You know, so that's that corporate employment branding opportunity. So I think clients are looking far more strategically than ever uh, about the way not only they hire, but keep and measure the success of those hire people and develop those people. And therefore, they're looking for more information more knowledge and more skills in how we provide the range of services that we need to provide that isn't just a bum on a seat. It just isn't Mm -hmm. that anymore. Uh, And where we've always given some kind of guarantee if they don't work out in three months or six months or whatever, we'll replace them or heaven forbid, have to give you money back, but replace them Nowadays, clients are looking at the metrics of who are the best recruitment companies who have placed people that have been amazingly successful over a three-year period. Mm. And i um, looking mm. at contractors of how they can use that pool of people to, to actually provide a bigger quality service to their customer base. A third of the UK recruitment market client base are actually um, outsourcing businesses themselves. third of all business goes through an outsourcing business. That's mm. a different service offering, generally a different business model than a direct placement contract or with a client, with an end user client. Mm. And so I think that the measurement of a range of different things, the longer term measurement of things. I think the desire for knowledge and expertise in a market and then in a different market and then potentially a new market, should we want to recruit in that market? And what about in a different country or a different geographical location or with a different business model in mind? I think clients are asking us for that kind of advice. And therefore, I do think, so when I say sophisticated, it's a bigger ticket scenario. I think that should warrant bigger fees not sure we're always confident enough to be demanding that but we should be some are some aren't um i think that that demands that we have well rounded educated preferably individuals not always formally educated but well rounded smart individuals that can come in and have a career where they are growing as an individual and are learning from a different range of sources on how to provide actually a sort of clear and rounded service offering that isn't just an introduction of a specific candidate.
1: I totally get you now, and I agree 100%. I think, look, the best recruiters and recruitment companies must be focused on not just presenting a CV or resume, but how can we add more value to the client and um, ensure that this is a suitable match who will um, you know stay in the job with the company and even progress uh, themselves within the business over a period of time so for absolutely for sure, and if we are able to do that, then that um can prevent as well the erosion of fees or the, you know, price resistance or pressure that that you know everybody uh, is under and that is I mean that really hasn't changed but if anything it's increased um, I think in order to it, it it's yeah for sure a lot of recruiters are still talking about we find the best candidate we do it faster and so on and there it has to be a lot more to the offering than that, I think, these days.
0: And some of the big companies out there that have their own heads of talent development and talent acquisition are even saying it's not always that we even need a candidate at this moment in time. What we need to do and are prepared to pay for is to keep abreast of the situation for when we do go on a recruitment programme and want to recruit a number of people. What are the salaries we should be paying? What is it that those candidates want is the new benefit place to park park your bicycle or is it time off to do voluntary work or is it bonuses like it kind of used to? And I think that we need to look at a range of services based around on our expertise um, and there will be times then we don't need to charge placement fees or um margins that we're charging in a different way. And we need to be open to that. I'm not saying dump your business model instantly, but be open to the opportunity that you your business can earn its fees in a range of different ways. But it's all about adding value to your client base and remembering that that client base is changing all the time. Look, when I first started in recruitment, it was line managers recruiting their own people and project managers recruiting their own people. Then it was HR. And we thought HR was, you know, a nightmare because they were <laughs> gatekeepers. But right. then, of course, came the procurement people that didn't even worry about relationships or quality of service. They just wanted it cheaper than anyone else. And now it's being measured with time to hire, length of stay, success in the job. et It's become a lot bigger than that. And so things do change. It's about keeping abreast of the changes and making sure that your business is not a step or more behind that, is either on it or marginally ahead of it. Look, that's why people come to Absco meetings because we're looking at that, which saves them when they're running a business having to do all of that
1: kind of research themselves. Beautiful, my friend Plamen Ivanov likes to say that we should reposition ourselves as management consultants who happen to specialize in talent uh, talent access, talent acquisition, and and um, really think. of of ourselves on that, on that same level as, you know, totally.
0: Totally. That's what we need to be. And I think there are some companies doing that and a lot of companies that could be doing that. And that's the opportunity because then it isn't, a rush to the cheapest, it's actually buying from the best and who can make the biggest difference to my business. And I would rather be selling into that environment than how cheap can you be? How, you know, golly, those reverse auctions that were set up, who's going to be the cheapest and, you know, be unafraid to, to go so cheap that they're not making a profit. It's just Ridiculous and frustrating, but I think there's a real opportunity for us. And it's more interesting to run a recruitment company on that basis. Really, it is.
1: Absolutely. And more fun and uh, more interesting. So, and something, last question uh, for today is you touched on the fact that Absco has helped numerous recruitment companies to um, expand into, internationally into, into new countries. And I'm getting more and more questions about that. I think um, A, it's for ambitious companies who who just see that as being a logical evolution. But also perhaps there's a feeling that in the UK it is becoming quite saturated. There's a you know huge number relative to our uh population, there's a huge number of recruitment companies. And, you know, some firms are thinking I wonder what opportunities there might be in in other countries and whether that would complement what we're doing so what kind of are the first steps in exploring that in deciding whether it does make sense to expand internationally
0: um Great question. I think the first one and the most important is to ask yourself why you're even thinking about it. Is it because there isn't enough market there for you to expand in your current niche? Does that mean it should be a different niche? Let me tell you, going into a different niche in the same uh, geographical setup is a hell of a lot easier than going abroad. It just is. Okay. Mm -hmm. So make sure that it really is saturated in what you're doing. Look at other niches first and look at whether really it's kind of an ego thing that you want to talk about your offices in wherever and New York or San Francisco or Berlin or Frankfurt or whatever.
1: Just rather be careful. New York and LA. There you go.
0: Just be careful. One of our members um, started their office in Essex, actually in a, an amazingly successful business and now have offices in, you know, across Europe and the States, but they still have that Essex address as, <laughs> as they talk about it. Fantastic. Um, so what I would say is make sure it's just not an ego thing, that there really is a market and do your research. Do your research into the market that you want to be in, who's there already, how are they succeeding, why are they succeeding, and then look at whether you have the resources and infrastructure and time on your own hands to go into another market. It always costs, I mean, this is a throwaway line, but it costs more than twice as much than you thought it was going to. It's a bit like any building job. It takes time to build longer than you thought it was and always more expensive than you thought it was going to be. Will it take your time away for the, from the core business, which is what's paying you and your team? and? have you got preferably a bit of internal company dna to put in that place so that it's an easy transition it's a big job doing that we run trade delegations normally every year we did a crazily a virtual one this year to um, we did new we did the states which is the hot place to be and i get that so we did new york san francisco um we, we did New York State, but it was New York City, really. California, and most people want San Francisco. Uh, we did Florida. Most people would want Miami, actually. And we also did Texas. And currently, Dallas is pretty hot to trot. Mm. And so, consequently, we did them statewide because all of the legislation is statewide, obviously, and different in each state. Um And we had a huge attendance on that. But the reality is, um, look at where you can send a bit of your own DNA to build around that if you can do that. That seems what, to be the And what thing. do you
1: mean by sending DNA? You mean a senior person in the business yeah. who is your ambassador to that? Your
0: person. Your person who you <laughs> trust. Maybe it's your business partner yeah. who's going to spend three years, four years in that other place or a very senior person that you really support in order to make sure it's the special bit about your business that you're taking with you rather than recruiting behind. Then build a local team around them is what I would do. Some some places are easier to sell to your business partner or one of your senior directors or whatever, but try and do that is what I would say. Research, spend more money researching. If you're an APSCO member, ask us. We've done trade delegations all over the world. And that's what we do in trade delegations. We normally would go to visit the country. We'd get all of the compliance and legislation stuff covered off. We'd look at the taxation system. We'd look at um how to do business, when people paid their bills, what the market is, what the economy is. And the last thing we do on every trade delegation is get a panel of Recruitment companies, Absco members that are there currently, often with the people that went and set it up, to tell us what mistakes they made, how and how for you not to make those mistakes, and that's what you need to look at from from deciding one whether to, to what time frame, and then how and where to go.
1: Wonderful, I. Um... From what I've seen, and the biggest reason for branch office failure is lack of strong local leadership. Uh, As in, I don't mean local as in they're from there, but that they are committed to that office and they, they in many cases, have relocated. So I know two clients who are APSCO members who've expanded internationally and have been very successful, but it was one of the founders or directors or partners who moved to that location with maybe a nucleus of a a couple of key people and then hired locally kind of to build around that. And that formula worked really well. Um, They did find though that they needed to adapt their culture a little bit depending on the local market. So one client who has done well in Singapore, but initially found it very challenging because, and in Singapore, and like many countries, you have to have uh, a, a proportion or a significant proportion of local uh, people hired <clears throat> rather than just expats. And um, they wanted to completely import their culture to Singapore, which worked great in Manchester, but they had to adapt it a little bit for, for it to, to work. And now I think it's, it's taken off, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a quick Win for sure.
0: It's never a quick win. And that's why I would say budget and double plus your budget. And when you think that you're going to go there as the senior person, maybe with a a core team around you, think you're going to go for longer. You cannot cookie cutter a culture to anywhere else. And actually you can't do it from London to Manchester or from Birmingham to Swindon. You cannot cookie cut that. And you definitely cannot uh, take that and expect it to fly in exactly the way in Singapore, which culturally is so different from the UK. I mean, it's a market I know very, very well. I'm there very regularly. um, And you certainly can't do that, but you can't do it anywhere. So I, I totally agree. And then you need to recruit locally and create, I think you need to create the mission that is about the core company values, but it Mm -hmm. will be delivered and reflected in a different
1: local, culturally appropriate way. That's the difference. Well said. And we're out of time and that's flown past. So thank you so much for your knowledge and experience today. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you as, as always. So thanks so much.
0: And I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. It did go really quickly, didn't it? I felt like we had no time at all. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for giving me the opportunity.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.